This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley with a bonus episode for you. Every week on my Times Radio show, we are counting down all of the leaders of the opposition. Leader of the pack. We do it every Monday just before midday with the political historian Nigel Fletcher from the Centre for Opposition Studies. And once a month, we round up uh, the latest batch that we've got and bring them to you here on the podcast. So we kick off this month with Spencer Cavendish, Marquis of Hartington. He's the first Liberal leader of the opposition that we've had for quite a while. We've had um, quite a few Conservatives over the last few weeks. Um, and he's the first um, Commons leader for the last few weeks as well, because we've mainly been looking at the House of Lords recently. Um, not that he was really that common, as you might guess from his uh, his title. Um, he was born into the Cavendish family, so he later became the eighth Duke of Devonshire. Um, but as I say, during this period, he was known by the courtesy title, whilst he was in the House of Commons, of the Marquess of Hartington, um, which led to his his nickname in political circles, which um, I read was uh, Hearty Tarty, he was known as, um, <laughs> which I think is absolutely brilliant. I've, I've got a friend um, whose um, surname is Hartley, and I'm going to start calling him Hartley Tartly, there we are. I think that's um, that's one of my favourite nicknames. Even better than the one the other week, who was um, for some reason called Pussy for reasons that I didn't. For really reasons that we into. could never quite get to the bottom of. No. Yeah. Um, so that was the Marcus of Hartington, um, and uh, he didn't go to Eton. He was um, surprisingly he was educated at home, but then of course went to Cambridge, um, and was elected uh, to the Commons in 1857 uh, as MP for North Lancashire. Um, he had a few uh, different seats during the time he was in the Commons, but was appointed to office by Lord Palmerston. Uh, who he was quite a fan of, um, lost his seat at one point and was then um, uh, brought back for another seat uh, in Wales. Uh, and then Gladstone um, became prime minister and appointed him as postmaster general. And in that job, he was uh, quite influential in overseeing the nationalisation of the telegraph system. Um, so we can probably blame him for uh, the, the foundations of social media, I think. Um, and then he became chief secretary for Ireland for four years during um, that government uh, of William Gladstone. And Gladstone and he um, had an interesting relationship over the rest of his um, career. When the Liberal government was defeated in 1874, Gladstone was leader of the opposition then for um, a year, um, but then announced his retirement from politics uh, in 1875. So Hartington um, took the job because the, the other contender didn't want it, uh, which I think is um, <laughs> sort of a, 
a mark of how um, appealing being leader of the opposition is. But he became leader um, and actually served uh, as leader for five years uh, in opposition. Um, and during that period, they had the usual squabbles that oppositions tend to have about the sort of style of opposition they should have. He was much more of the view that, that there was clearly a conservative um, mood in the country and it was better for them to be patient and just sort of wait it out uh, for the, the tide to turn. Whereas there are other people, including Gladstone, who sort of returned to the fray a few years later and started campaigning quite vociferously um, across the country. And he was much more in favour of there being a more aggressive approach uh, to politics. Um, so he had to contend with all of those debates and arguments during the course of uh, his five years in opposition um, and then led the party, led the Liberals to uh, victory in 1880 um, and was then invited by uh, Queen Victoria to form a government. Now, normally, Nigel, that would... It exclude him from our exactly. list because we only do leaders of the opposition who didn't become prime ministers. He was leader of the opposition. He led the party into an election. They won the election. He was asked to form a government by the Queen. What happened? Well, at that point, um, he had a conversation with Gladstone uh, and Gladstone, who had, as I say, returned to the political fray a couple of years before, was very visible in the press and in the, and in the um, sort of public eye during the course of that campaign. Um, and Gladstone made it very clear that having been a former prime minister, he would not serve under him in a lower position. Uh, and so he faced the dilemma, does he form a government that excludes this big figure who is now sort of the, the leading liberal in the land and could then become quite a dangerous figure on the back benches, or does he give way? Um, and he gave way to him. And so, as the history books will show, Gladstone became prime minister again, in 1880. Um, and uh, he swallowed his pride and took a job in his cabinet as Secretary of State for, for India, um, a bit like Prime Minister sending sort of rivals <laughs> off to Northern Ireland, I suppose, um, at the time. So he, he served as, as Secretary of State for India and then Secretary of State for War. So yes, as you say, he's quite an interesting character in that he seemed to do everything right. He got the, he, he got the party uh, to the brink of government, won the election, was asked to form a government, and then had it snatched away at the very last minute. It's amazing. It's amazing that story. Good, a good one for pub trivia questions. I suppose we should reflect a bit, Nigel, on the fact that today is uh, marks two years since Keir Starmer became leader of the opposition. We will we'll obviously do him later in the in the in the in the year, assuming that he is still leader of the opposition when we get get to him. How how does how do you think he's doing compared to the great swathe of uh, former leaders of the opposition that we've been looking at? Well, he I think had a quite difficult start because if we think back to two years ago. We're in the middle of the, the, the pandemic at that point. He gave his acceptance speech sort of on camera without an audience there. There wasn't the great sort of cheering crowds that we've come to expect when a leader um, takes office in that way. Um, and it was there was a lot of discussion then that he was facing the same problem that Ian Duncan Smith had. Um, Ian Duncan Smith became leader of the opposition, I think, the day before um, or the day after, I think, 9-11 um, um, happened. Um, and so his election as leader of the Conservatives and becoming leader of the opposition was completely buried, of course, by, by that news. Um, and he found it extremely difficult to make an impact. And that's something that leaders of the opposition always, always struggle with. They, they struggle to get media coverage. They struggle to define themselves. One of the criticisms of Ed Miliband recently um, in, in recent years was that he struggled to define himself over the first few years of his leadership and allowed the Conservatives to define him. And there was a lot of talk over the first year of Keir Starmer's leadership that he was in that same position. He was struggling to make any impact. Um, but I think we've seen since then 
um, both with the easing of, of COVID restrictions and things, he's been able to get out and campaign. But also, um, frankly, we've seen the government facing a lot of difficulties that he's benefited from. And it's one of the lessons that actually, no matter how good you are in opposition, a lot of the time you're dependent on, on the government messing up for you to make any progress. That was Spencer Cavendish. Next up on our countdown of leaders of the opposition, it's Sir Stafford Northcote. He was born in 1818 in London, um, educated as we've uh, become accustomed to at Eton and Oxford. Um, he went into the law, he was a lawyer, uh, and so was called to the bar um, before um, he was um, in office in government. Um, but interestingly, he was private secretary to William Gladstone when he was at the Board of Trade, and uh, that was in 1847. At that time, Gladstone was a conservative before he um, split from the conservatives and went over to um, the liberals. Um, so this became quite an important point later on uh, where Northcote um, had this prior experience working for Gladstone. Um, he then was elected to Parliament uh, for Dudley in 1855, uh, and then went on to uh, represent Stamford a bit later. Um, and in the course of his earlier career, before he became leader of the opposition, he was uh, in the cabinet as firstly president of the Board of Trade, uh, Secretary of State for India. And then finally, he was Chancellor of the Exchequer for six years under Benjamin Disraeli. And um, Disraeli was one of his um, mentors, really. He was a great supporter of his, uh, and he owes most of his career, really, to him. Um, prior to being um, in office, uh, when he was still a... Um, a sort of legal clerk. He co-authored what's now known as the Northcote Trevelyan Report, uh, which students of politics are very, very familiar with because mm. it's um, the foundation document really for the, the modern civil service. Uh, so if you're wondering about Northcote, yes, he is that one. Um, but he was <laughs> Chancellor of the Exchequer for, um, for six years uh, until 1880. And uh, what then happened um, was that um, Disraeli, as I say, was a great mentor of, uh, of his, described him as his right hand. Um, and he was Chancellor of the Exchequer in his, his government, but also leader of uh, the House of Commons, because Disraeli went to the House of Lords and carried on as Prime Minister from there. And they needed someone in the House of Commons uh, to lead the Conservatives there. So Northcote became the leader uh, in the House of Commons, as well as Chancellor. So when that government um, lost office and they went into opposition, he was then the leader of the Conservatives in the Commons and so mm. became leader of the opposition then. And he sounds so accomplished and even made it to the level of being Chancellor of the Exchequer. And as you say, had someone like Benjamin Disraeli backing him. So, you know, listeners at home might be scratching their head and thinking, whatever stopped him from <laughs> being able to lead the party to, to, to victory and, and actually take the top job? Indeed. And this is the sort of, it could have been me, this, uh, mm. as we're familiar with. Um, I nearly called you Matt then, I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> I've been called uh, worse. <laughs> but we, um, we moved then on into the period in opposition. Um, and Disraeli sadly then died um, a year later. Um, and so he became uh, the leader in the Commons whilst Lord Salisbury became leader in the Lords. And unfortunately, during his time as leader of the opposition, he really wasn't very effective. He was up against mm. Gladstone. And rather than being vigorous in opposition, because he'd had this experience with him working as his clerk, uh, he didn't really want to attack him very much. So when it came to the next period of office, they went for Lord Salisbury instead of him because they didn't think he was very effective. Yeah. Nigel Fletcher taking a look at Conservative Leader of the Opposition, Sir Stafford Northcote. You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Up next, we'll hear from two more leaders of the opposition. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is the Red Box Podcast. Now we continue our tour through Leaders of the Opposition with Nigel Fletcher. Next, we turn our attention to Sir Michael Hicks Beach. He was very young um, when he was elected, but actually he'd spent a few years uh, prior to that resisting um, people's requests for him to stand for Parliament. I mean, he went in when he was about 27 um, by the by the time he went uh, in, into the House of Commons. Um, but I mean, he was he was not an aristocrat. Um, he was um, son of a baronet, so sort of somewhere in, in between. Um, and so, when his father died, uh, he became uh, Sir Michael um, and became sort of really a country gent and was sort of uh, looking after the uh, the country estates in, in Gloucestershire. Um, and it looked like he was going to sort of stay doing that. He wasn't particularly interested in politics. Mm. Um, and um, eventually, there was a by election in East Gloucestershire, and he was persuaded. Um, to stand in it, but but yeah, it's it, it does say something about the time that the age of twenty seven is considered a bit late to go into Parliament. <laughs> and so, when he was uh, in Parliament, um, did he quickly make his way up the greasy pole? Yes, and that was quite surprising because uh, initially he went in and, uh, as I say, you know, was a country squire, really sort of gentry. And so, for the first few years, he was a bit of a backbench rebel. He'd um, sort of opposed some of the, the measures that were being put forward, including um, the reform acts that were going through. He was quite sceptical about those um, as well. Um, and it looked like he was set to be a kind of a traditional Tory um, squire um, on the backbenches. Um, but it was really Benjamin Disraeli who sort of became his great patron. And mm. he uh, made him a junior minister in uh, 1868. And uh, from then on, his reputation sort of rose and rose because he was a very good minister. He had a great ability to master his brief. He had a great memory uh, and was quite impressive. And so that started his rise. And so when Disraeli returned to office um, in 1874, um, that's when he, he made him a more senior minister. He was chief secretary for Ireland um, and then promoted him to the cabinet. So um, it, it's really an example. We've heard um, a lot during um, this series about people who have sort of gone in mainly because of the the position they hold in society rather than any great ability. Yeah. He certainly was able, and and that's what sort of helped him to, as you say, and it's Disraeli's phrase, of course, uh, to, to climb the greasy pole. And so tell us then about his ascent even further um, to the position, which is the reason we're talking about him today, to him becoming leader of the opposition. Yes, well, I mean, like some of these that we've, we've talked about, his, his claim to be on this list is, is slightly tenuous in that it's not a huge part of his career when he was leader of the opposition. Um, but he was certainly a very senior figure. And so, as I say, he was in Disraeli's cabinet uh, from 1874 until um, that government fell in 1880. Um, and then the Conservatives went into opposition. And because he'd been a, a fairly senior figure and, as I say, was very able, uh, he was quite a significant uh, figure in opposition. Um, Disraeli himself had gone to the House of Lords, so he wasn't around in the House of Commons. And in any case, he died the following year. 
Uh, and as we heard last week, Lord Salisbury took over as the, the, the leader of the party in the House of Lords. But the person we talked about last week, Sir Stafford Northcote, was not really seen as being very effective in opposition. And so we have um, Hicks' speech then being much more effective in the House of Commons. He developed quite a following there, um, including um, one of his great supporters was Randolph Churchill, who was um, Winston Churchill's father. He was a great backer of his as well. Um, and so we have a situation where you've got a fairly weak leader of the opposition in Stafford Northcote in the Commons, uh, and this rising star, Hicks Beach, actually being much more effective. So he um, actually led to the downfall of the government. He proposed the amendment to the budget in 1885 that led to Gladstone's resignation. So he was clearly a very effective oppositionist. Um, and so that government fell. Um, and then we have a, a short period of government. Lord Salisbury formed a government um, in which he made um, Hicks Beach the Chancellor. And so he became Chancellor of the Exchequer and leader of the House of Commons. And of course, when you've got a Prime Minister in the House of Lords, that position of being leader of the House of Commons is very significant. That government also then didn't last very long. We had quite a few changes of government during this period. Um, so when that government fell and the Conservatives went back into opposition, because he was leader of the Conservatives in the House of Commons, he became sort of by default then leader of the opposition um, in the Commons as well. So that's his claim to, to be on this list. He, he then sort of um, spent a brief period of time then as leader of the opposition in the House of Commons. That was the story of Sir Michael Hicks Beach. And finally, on this month's roundup of leaders of the opposition, the first Earl of Kimberley, Sir John Wodehouse, and how he became known as Uncle Kim. He's another peer, as you will have gathered, and he's actually the first of our leaders to have served into the 20th century. So we finally made it into uh, the 20th century. We're getting dangerously close to uh, a period of history that I'm supposed to know uh, something about professionally. Um, but um, he was born in 1826, and he was the eldest son of um, Henry Woodhouse. Uh, and in case anyone was wondering, Woodhouse is spelt W-O-D-E. Um, and yes, he is distantly related to P.G. Woodhouse, uh, which is quite interesting. Um, and he was the heir to a large estate in Norfolk. Um, and whilst they were clearly fortunate, um, during his childhood, they had quite a, a number of family tragedies when he was just seven years old. Four members of his family died in just over a year, uh, including two of his sisters and, crucially, his father. So um, he became the heir to uh, all of those lands in, uh, in Norfolk uh, and also to his grandfather's um, peerage. He was um, uh, Baron uh, Woodhouse. Um, he was educated at, uh, well, go on, have a guess, Matt. Oh, let me guess. Was it, uh, should we say Eton and then Oxford? Oh, there we go. I think that gets a ding on the bell, I think. There we are. Um, <laughs> yes, Eton and Oxford, uh, where he studied classics. Um, that's something which uh, seems to have become a, a bit of a trend for political leaders uh, into the present day, shall we say. Um, and uh, before that, he was sent away to be taught by a, a sort of theologian uh, called the Reverend Thomas Arnold in, in Rutland. Uh, before the age of 10 and he was quite stern but Woodhouse later said that he was a good influence on him and removed from him what he described as a vile habit of falsehood uh, teaching him to be truthful and accurate um, but uh, I'll, I'll leave you to speculate whether that might have held him back in politics uh, <laughs> later on but that's what he accredited uh, him for, for doing um, but he was clearly gifted academically um, and then of course because of his father's death he was the the heir to that uh, that title and so um, at the age of 20 he succeeded him um, as uh, Baron Woodhouse and inherited all of those lands. Um, but he was reported to be disappointed to have missed out on his chance to be in the House of Commons, as we've talked about in previous weeks. Um, the 
the peers that we've had, although they were, of course, later on in the House of Lords, before that, they usually went into the House of Commons first, and he missed out on that and was quite disappointed because he was quite politically interested. But it, what it meant was that he uh, was in the House of Lords as a, a very young man. He was 20 years old, and there weren't very very many of them who were um, that young. Um, and so he was promoted fairly rapidly. He became Under Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs. He was quite good at the job um, and was later appointed Lord Lieutenant of Ireland um, and oversaw a number of uh, reforms there, reforms to the universities, disestablishment of the Church uh, of Ireland and, and that sort of thing. Um, but he was a staunch opponent of home rule, which was a, an important issue uh, at, that at, that, at that time. Yeah, so how indeed. did he en actually end up then as being, albeit briefly, leader of the opposition? Yes. I mean, again, he he's one of these ones where, you know, all of his other um, jobs in government really overshadow um his his time in opposition and um he was he's was serving in um, gladstone's government um and he became uh the um uh, he was offered the, the chance to be viceroy of india and turned it down but was appointed secretary of state for india um and so he was in quite a number of um, of senior roles there and then um in 1891 he they were in opposition and earl granville who we spoke about a few weeks ago um died and he'd first been uh, leader in the in the Lords in I think 1858 so he was a very long-serving um, leader and when he died Kimberley succeeded him as um, as leader of the opposition in the House of Lords but he was only there briefly for a year before he was back um, as uh, Foreign Secretary um, and uh, and then uh, had another period in government and then after that he had another spell of about three years which went from 1899 until his his death and at that time um, quite nicely as an elder statesman he was known as uncle kim which sounds vaguely <laughs> north korean to me uh, more than anything else um but that's what he was known as and was uh, seen as quite a mentor for the sort of new generation of, of young liberals um and so as i say he died then in um 1902 he was fairly well liked by the sound of it um and uh, of course that brings us uh, to the 20th century which is rather exciting and um, um, just finally Nigel, at what point do we get just one leader of the opposition rather than having the sort of the one in the yeah. laws and the one in the commons yeah, we're, we're getting towards that point because um, as we get into the 20th century, the crucial date is sort of 1910, where we have the Parliament Acts and the great crisis over the budget. Um, and uh, at that point, the powers of the House of Lords are stripped away. Um, and we have the last uh, prime minister from the House of Lords, which is Lord Salisbury. Uh, and after that, there weren't any further prime ministers from the Lords. And so the action shifts entirely to the Commons. Uh, and from then on, we can, um, can really say that there's one overarching leader um, who leads the party and is seen as the, the undisputed leader. So you always learn something on the podcast there. That was uh, the story of John Woodhouse, the first Earl of Kimberley. You're bang up to date now with our Opposition Leaders series. Nigel will be back every Monday on Times Radio at about quarter to 12. Or catch our next roundup of the Leaders of the Opposition next month on the podcast. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.